Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Would you bow with me to just pray one more time? Lord, we live in a culture where every day we're bombarded with so much noise. People are always talking at us, trying to get us to listen. But we acknowledge this morning that what we're about to hear is not just more talk. We're about to hear from you. And we pray that you would make our hearts ready to hear words, really, that you yourself have put down on paper for our benefit. May these words come alive to us, especially for those who are in the midst of great pain in their lives. May these words bring tremendous strength and hope in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys can pull the slides up for the message there. The, uh, the First Peter series is drawing to a close. And um, one of the things we're, we're looking at at the end of this letter here are some marks of what a healthy church looks like. And last week... Uh, mentioned to you that a healthy church has a very healthy attitude towards authority, both from the side of those who have that authority and those who are under it. This morning, we're going to look at how a healthy church responds to suffering. You know, I, I go to a lot of networking meetings all over the country. It's one of the great joys I've had in the last five years, especially of my ministry career, is that our church has freed me up to travel the country, getting to meet other pastors who are doing exactly what I'm doing, and we're sharing our stories and making friends, and it really fills my heart to fellowship with those guys. But i got to tell you, here's how it usually goes. They rent a really nice house somewhere by some scenic place and get us away, and then we ride from the airport in our rental cars. We drive into this living room, and there's a bunch of guys you've never met before, and you know, even though we're all pastors, we're still guys, and we just kind of size each other up and go... I guess I might be friends with that guy, and that guy definitely not. And, you know, you're just kind of trying to feel out what's this room going to be like. Which of these guys are going to be lifelong friends, and which are going to be, oh, yeah, I heard of that guy before I once met him in California. So I'm meeting this guy, a bunch of these guys, and this one guy really drew me. His name was, it was David, Pastor David. And I was drawn to him because he seemed such like a, a sincere, soft-spoken guy. And I, I tend to be not as much... Soft-spoken, and, and so for some reason, I'm really drawn to guys who are like that. They're gentle guys. And so I, I began con- conversing with this guy, and at first I'm thinking, just another guy I'm going to meet. But then he began laying the story on me, and it just blew me away. And the reason that his story made such an impact on me is first how intensely sad it was, but also how much peace he seemed to have in his life. See, not long before coming to this meeting, he had lost his wife and two of his three children in a car accident. I guess something had been going on. The kids were making a bit of a ruckus, and and his wife had turned back to try to straighten things out. When she turned around, she had lost control of the minivan they were driving, and they plowed headlong into a semi-truck. And uh, two of his kids and his wife died pretty much instantly. And his oldest child happened to survive the accident was really a, a wreck at, at the time. But uh, he was sharing this with me and how it was just him and his son now and how there would be horrible days where he would just think about what he'd lost and he would look at his son and there was a lot of healing that needed to take place. But as he's sharing the story, um, what made such an impact on me was how quiet his spirit seemed and how 
he had seemed to accept that this was part of what God was going to be doing in his life. At the time that I met him, I also had three children. And my wife is a professional at falling asleep when she's driving long distances. And I just kept thinking to myself, what if it were me? What if that was my story? How would I be holding up today? Because he was still serving his church. And he was holding it together. And he was helping other people in his congregation heal from all of this. And what I learned that day was suffering can visit us really any day. You just don't have a lot of control over it. I mean, I wish I could control everything that happened in my world, but I can't. How do you explain something like going to another country that is just filled with inconveniences and difficulties to serve handicapped children and having some stranger drive by and just put a bullet in you and end your life? How do you explain something that random and that evil? How do you control it? What do you do with something like that? And so I learned that day that suffering... And I don't mean just like I have a toothache. I mean suffering can visit you on any single day. But I also learned that the way we respond to that suffering makes a world of difference. Suffering can either make you or it can break you. And it, it has everything to do with how you and I respond to it. Some people are ruined by it. They never quite recover from the first true suffering they pass through. And others emerge so strengthened that they become a shelter for others who are going through pain. This morning's passage directly addresses how we respond to suffering that falls upon us. And listen to what Peter says. Humble yourself, yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's what I'd like to give you this morning. When you find yourself in suffering and problems, and and I think this can be rightly applied to just about any difficulty you face in life, but I want especially those of you who find yourself today in the midst of real suffering. And some of you I know, because I'm your pastor, I know your stories. Some of you are going through that right now. Some of you have passed not long ago through a very, very, very dark period of suffering. And I promise you that some, if not most of us, Have that awaiting us at some point in the future. A suffering, a darkness, a pain so great, we will actually lose our breath and wonder if we can make it to the next day. That kind of pain is a part of life in this world. You can try all you want to secure yourself against it, but I promise you that it is part of the story for so many of us. What do you do when that kind of suffering hits you? And anybody who's ever loved anyone or anything knows that that puts you immediately at risk. Pain that is almost immeasurable. One of the things we can do 
is wait on God. It's a picture of a place none of us really like. It's a waiting room. It's where you sit before the real show begins, where something is about to happen, and you're waiting. And sometimes, and I don't know, doctors in our, in our congregation, why do you make us wait so long? I just don't understand it. Well, anyway, waiting is a pretty hard thing. And listen to what Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You know, Bible scholar, a guy named Northrop Fry made an observation that he called the U-shaped curve. Here's what he said. He said, if you think about it, if you survey the lives of so many of the key figures which God used throughout the Bible, one thing you'll notice is that they began somewhere on top, or at least at neutral, and then... At some point, just before God was going to use them, they were brought low. They were brought into a very, very deep valley where everything was lost. And then they were brought back again just in time for them to serve God's purpose. Again and again, as you read the Bible, you see that this is a pattern God uses. It's almost unchanging. Anytime he wants to use a person, he casts them low, shapes them to the forge of suffering. And then just at the end, when he's ready to use them, they emerge out of it. And he restores them so that they can be useful to him. You know, that observation reminds me of when I watch shows like American Chopper. And in these metal fabrication shops, they have this thing called a bending machine. Have you ever seen it? You don't want to get your hands stuck in a bending machine. It's two giant rollers made of, of metal. And it ex- applies tremendous pressure to a piece of sheet metal so that you can bend it. And some of them, they use rollers. Some of them use a hammer that just keeps going like this over and over. And what you do is take a piece of sheet metal, which is nothing more than solid potential, and you shape it into something useful. In the process of shaping metal, you change its very form so that it goes from something that could be something to something that is something. I really believe that's a good analogy for the way that God uses suffering to shape us. Because so often we don't really know how strong our legs are, what God has deposited in us, until we've been humbled and broken and then strengthened through the passage of suffering. The reason he says that we have to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is because it's so easy to hear that, it is so hard to accept it when you're the piece of sheet metal being pounded into a form. You know, it all sounds good on paper, that the suffering, this horrible thing I'm going through, has a purpose. And don't you just, if you're the one suffering, don't you just get a little bit irritated when people, well-meaning people come up to you and say, you know, I know it's really difficult, but God has a purpose. It's really hard to hear that when you're dying inside. That's why I think Peter says that the operative word is humble yourselves. Humble. And humble against what? Just dumb luck? Blind fate? Just accept that this is part of your life's journey. No, he says, humble yourself, and this is not relational. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He's not asking us to just accept that sometimes life is, it will hand you cookies, and sometimes life hands you lemons. That is not what he's saying at all. He's saying, listen, it seems random, at times it seems unfair, but humble yourself because even this period of suffering, this great darkness, is only happening because God, whose mighty hand still controls everything, is allowing it. This couldn't be happening in your life if God would not permit it to be. 
And so you humble yourself under God's mighty hand because who else's hand could you accept such darkness from? It would drive me insane if I thought in the midst of my loss and suffering, all I could explain it with is, well, that's life. If that's life, what will be my my answer to that is I would end it. Because if this is life, then life is not worth having. But if somehow there is a God whose mighty hand still superintends the universe, is still in control when my life seems out of control, then maybe I can accept that this valley won't last forever. And listen to what it says. It says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time. Do you know what that means? At the time that lines up with God's plans for your life. His purposes, when it makes sense to him for the darkness to be finished and you've been formed the way he needs you to be, at that time, the darkness will lift. And it says he will exalt you. Now, he won't exalt us the way we exalt Christ. But that word is literally a verb meaning to lift up or rise out of. What that says is as hard as your suffering is today, when it's over, according to God's timetable, he will surely lift you up and out of that. The question is not how long will it last, but really what is happening in me while all that is happening and going on around me. And so one of the first things we learn is that life for many of us is operating under God's principle of the U-shaped curve and that the suffering you're going through, as difficult as it is, is necessary. Now, if you're a little bit bored at this moment, and I I get that. I mean, I've fallen asleep in my share of sermons, I guarantee you. If you're someone like, say something new, we've heard, heard that before. It's probably because real suffering hasn't really fallen upon your life. You might have been irritated a time or two, lost a little bit of money or something, but I guarantee you that when real suffering visits you, the thing you'll need most to remember is this very thing which seems so disconnected from your life right now. You will need to remember that sometimes all you can do is wait on God. Trust Him. Humble yourself before Him because He has a purpose in it and when it is finished, then the suffering will be finished. Here's the second thing that Peter gives us for when that kind of serious suffering visits our lives. Can you actually see this poor donkey's head? That's just not right. That's messed up. And that's not a Halloween costume of a haystack. That's the way people move stuff in certain parts of the world. I've seen it. It'd be a little disingenuous for that old man to say, I brought a bunch of hay to the market. Because he didn't really bring anything. The donkey did all the work. He just walked behind. Now, wouldn't it be nice if all the stuff that weighed us down could be loaded on somebody else's back? I mean, so let's say you accept that I'm in the bottom of the U-shaped curve for now. This is a season of my life where suffering is necessary. Let's say you accept that. That's fine if you can wait for God's deliverance to come one day. But what do you do with all the pain and anxiety that is building up right now? Even if you can accept that your suffering has a purpose in God's hand, what do you do with everything you're feeling right now? 
Because that's really why I have a counseling ministry. That's what I'm talking to most people about is, fine, fine, I know you got a purpose for all this, God, but what about right now? I can hardly breathe. I feel like I want to kill myself. You have no idea how many people have spoken those words to me, and it is so heavy when you hear that. I don't know what to do with all of this. You can try to give me words that make sense of it, but in the end, it's just heavy. You know what most people who are suffering feel like? They feel like this. It's a little overambitious. Do you ever feel like that in your heart? I know that's a little bit of a funny picture, but really when you're in darkness, that's exactly what it feels like. You, you can move your legs all you want. You aren't going anywhere. Sometimes life throws stuff on you and you've got nowhere to go, nowhere to put it. What does God say to you? Verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. You know what I think happens a lot when we're suffering and we go to pray? We play a game of show and tell with God. Here's what I mean by that. We bring out all of our pain and sorrow and unmet longings and we show God everything in our hearts and then we talk about it and then right afterwards we wrap it all back up in a little nice brown paper bag, stuff it in our knapsack and we go on our merry way hanging on to the very things we just talked to God about. I think that happens to so many people. That's why prayer doesn't feel very freeing or satisfying to so many people. We actually play show and tell with God. And what God is saying is, look, prayer is not about just you telling me all your problems. God is not a psychiatrist. He doesn't want you laying on his couch talking it out. He says, no, prayer is more about transaction than just communication. The world's problems are not simply solved by talking about everything. Because you still need a place to take that burden that's on your back. Can that donkey hang in midair, just tell another donkey how heavy it felt? And is that going to take any of the weight off? The only way to get that donkey back onto ground is to unload the cart. That's the only way. Unless he moves that load someplace else, he will be stuck forever for all the talking in the world. Do you have any idea how many copies of this photo I found on the internet? That's one famous donkey. You can talk about this, but there's only one way to solve that donkey's problem. You throw it on him. That's what God is saying. Cast all of your anxieties on me. And that word is very visual in the Greek. It's like the the feeling of throwing cargo onto the back of a donkey. You know, this picture. That's what it is. He's saying, look, you're not strong enough or heavy enough to hang on to all of that. It's killing you to hold it. And the only way you're ever going to be able to keep moving is to throw it somewhere else. And God says, I've got big shoulders. Throw it on me. Now, here's the thing. That's good theory, but I'm not sure what that means practically. Do you know when I was in, in college and high school, we used to sing this song, and, and it's just so old that the praise team guys, I don't think they even know what it is. Do you remember that? Old guys, do you remember that song, I, I cast all my cares upon you? You know that one? I lay all my burdens down at your feet, and any time that I don't know what. And it's a great song, it's just it's singing this verse. I cast everything. And I heard that, I would go, Lord, I want to cast it all on you. And as I'm singing and weeping, I have no idea what to do. What does it mean to cast all my cares upon God? I can't give you the full wisdom on that in a 30-minute talk, but I can give you this. 
In order to understand practically what it means to throw my burdens onto God, I have to explore the root of why I have anxiety in the first place. Because what he's asking us to throw on him is all the anxiety that is produced in the midst of suffering. You know, in suffering, here's the thing. The pain itself is one thing, but the anxiety that builds up is just as heavy. Because you're suffering one thing now, but it's the future. And that's really the root of anxiety, isn't it? It's that the present thing is heavy, but it's the future that weighs you down and produces anxiousness. Questions like, will this darkness ever pass? Will I ever get over this pain? Will this ever end? Will I ever get what my heart is yearning for? These are the questions about a future you can't see or control that produce anxiety, isn't it? And so you think about it, the present pain shows you a glimpse of what a horrible future might look like, and that produces weight. What do you do with that weight? To cast your anxiety upon God is at least first this. It is to transfer to God full responsibility for what the future brings you. It's, it's total folly, it's foolishness to hang on to anxiety because you're worried about a future because you can't control that future at all. And as much as you hang on to it for all the hand-wringing you do, you can't change that future against the mighty hand of God. The, the future is, in fact, in God's hands. And to cast it on him to say, God, the outcome of my life is not something I have control over. I have tried to wrestle it from you and I have not been successful. Because for all the money in my bank account, I cannot keep my children from dying. For all the safe driving record I have, I can't keep a drunk person from plowing into me one night. I can't make sure that I don't get cancer. I can't control the economy. I can't even determine who becomes president of this country. I'm in control of virtually nothing. One day, bad things might happen. And as much as I worry, I recognize, I humble myself and I say, God, the outcome of this life has always been your responsibility. And to cast my cares, my anxiety upon God is to say, I recognize that's true and I'm no longer going to worry about something I have no authority over. I'm not going to do it anymore. Instead, I will be freed now, having yielded the future anxiety to God, to seek His grace for today. This is where so many suffering people lose their ways. They worry about tomorrow and forget that where you really need God is to put one foot in front of the other and get through this day until the sun sets. And the amazing thing is all the things you worry about haven't happened yet, but today is the thing you're responsible for. And if you will be freed of the future worries... God can give you the grace to just make it through this day. And tomorrow morning, the sun will rise again, and you will have the burden again, and God will take it from you and bring you through yet another day. And that's how everybody, through all of history, has walked through the valley of the U-shaped curve. You don't walk through it banking on the rise that comes. You walk through it one day at a time, one step after the next, one breath after the other. And that's the way you make it. God sustains you in the moment until he's ready to lift you up. And you can't embrace that kind of grace if you're hanging on to the anxieties about what the future holds. How is it that you can just take the future, which you care so much about, and throw it onto God's back? Well, how many of you are parents? You see a show of hands. 
Also, just to kind of wake you up. If you're parents, I bet you, you're like me and my wife, we've had this conversation. If you and I were to die, who do we give our children to? We don't speak of that necessarily as a gift because it's four of them. It's like, who, who is crazy enough to take all four of our children? But you know the thing is, when you seriously talk about it, it's a little bit depressing thinking about who's going to take your kids in the event of your death. But as you think about that short list of people, one of the top criteria is, do they really love us? Because if they love us, they'll love our children the way we would have. Can I really trust that they won't just use my kids for cheap labor, but they will love them, take care of them, invest in them the way I would have if I were still around to do it? You know, I care a lot about my future. Do you care about your future? You have some plans for tomorrow and 20 years down the line. If you care about your future, you can't just give that over to someone unless you're convinced they love you. And so Peter's quick to remind us, you can give God the future outcomes of your life because he's not the God who lives in the volcano. He's a God who cares for you. He's demonstrated it many, many more times than you need to be reminded in your life. And it is this God who cares for you who will take your burdens from you. And finally, Peter gives us a third reminder. Honor God. Honor God. We'll get back to that picture in a minute. Listen to what he says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Listen, when you listen to people who have really suffered talk about what they went through, and if you haven't yet, I would recommend you do this. Find somebody who's just been through hell on earth and listen to their story, listen to their testimony. Here's what they'll tell you. They'll tell you that the suffering and the pain was really bad, but maybe what was even worse was that when you're suffering you often feel very alone and isolated in it. See, suffering and pain does a real psychological number on people. Even though it's not technically true, the psychological impact of suffering and pain is that you start thinking, maybe I'm the only one in the world who's going through this. And what's harder is you try to explain just what you're feeling, and you always have the suspicion everybody's downplaying what you're saying. You know, you say things like, it really hurts, and like, yeah, I know. And you're thinking to yourself, no, you have no idea. They say, no, I got dumped before too. Yeah, but not by someone this great. And you're going through all this rhetoric in your mind where you're saying, nobody understands the full weight of my pain. I can describe it, but they just, they're not able to see what's inside of here. And after a while, the loneliness gets even deeper because the more you talk about it, the more your friends start to go, get over it. And you start feeling a little bit like everyone's getting sick of hearing it. And that makes you feel even more alone because as well-meaning as they are, they can only listen to your drama 8,000 times before they finally go, I've seen this one before. Move on. And yeah, it's easy for them to move on, but it's not so easy for you to move on, is it? How do you deal with, move on, from losing two of your children and your wife in one split second? How do you just move on from that? How do you pick up your bootstraps and just keep walking? It's that loneliness, that isolation, 
which puts us in such great danger when we're suffering. Because when you begin hearing that little voice in your head that says, you're the only one, no one else understands, no one has walked this path before, it's hopeless. That kind of voice and feeling of isolation, I think, puts us in danger of two really bad roads we can go down as a result of our suffering. And the first bad road is despair, and the second one is defiance. Let me describe those two roads for you briefly. Despair is when you say, nobody understands, I'm totally alone in the world, and if I'm this alone, am I even really here? Maybe I should just give up. And that's where despair sets in, and you feel that life is so futile and meaningless that being on the planet isn't even worth it. You'll hear things in your voice like, if I disappear tomorrow, who would even care? And I've known people I've cared about who have ended their lives because they heard that voice. In the the midst of suffering and pain, the despair got to them so deeply that they just turned off the switch. That's a horrible answer. It is so far from God's plan for any human life, and yet that is the logical conclusion when despair begins to take hold of a human heart. There's another equally bad road you go down when you're suffering and you're feeling isolated, and that is defiance. And it says, if nobody understands me, if nobody cares, then why should I seek to understand anyone else? Why should I care what anyone else thinks? In fact, why should I even care what God thinks anymore? I was a good boy or girl. I played ball by his rules. I did everything I was supposed to, and look what's happened to my life. And if this is how God repays his servants, then really, at the end of the day, what is the point of being good? And I've seen a lot of my friends go down this road because they hurt so badly and a defiance began to arise in the hearts that said, if no one else will be there for me, if even God and this universe will treat me this unfairly, I don't really care what I do anymore. Why should I guard my heart? Why should I follow the rules? Why not just do what feels good? I've seen people who've been cheated on somehow feel vindicated, justified, to go out and have all kinds of frivolous affairs themselves. How heartbreaking is that? Because when we go down either one of these roads, the result is out of our pain, we will sin. And when you sin as a result of your pain, the only thing you end up succeeding in is adding more pain to what you're already experiencing. And what's more, you start putting up barriers between you and the God who wants to love you out of that pain. This is not theory for me. I've watched this happen in so many lives. There are people I used to serve with who we looked at each other's faces and said, we will, walk, we will walk with the Lord all our lives together. We'll check in on each other when we're 50 and we'll smile knowing that God has held on to all of us. There are friends like that that I had who are so far from God now and all it took to knock him down was that one horrible season of suffering. And they responded poorly. They responded outside of the Lord's strength and instruction. And that suffering completely ruined them. They never recovered from it. And in the bargain, they lost everything that was precious to them. Not only what was taken away, but they forfeited what they already still had in their hands. Why does Peter evoke this imagery of the lion? It's a cool picture, isn't it? Here's the thing about lions. It's hard enough avoiding the roads of despair and defiance by ourselves. But you add to that equation that you've got an enemy 
who is actively trying to oppose you. In fact, it's interesting, he says, look, your adversary, he's talking about Satan here, and he's saying, it's not just God's enemy, it's personal. The devil doesn't just hate God, he's your adversary too. He hates your guts. He, he would be rejoicing if your life fell apart. But here's something you should know about lions, and I think this is part of why Peter chose a lion as an illustration for this. Lions are very lazy animals. Do you realize that they're inactive for 20 out of 24 hours a day? Some of you are like, is there like a pre-lion major in college? Because you love that. Just lounge around in the sun and the mud, digesting the ox that you ate or whatever, the zebra, for 20 hours a day. So when a lion finally decides to rustle its sorry lazy butt out of the mud pile and just go hunting, it doesn't want to do a lot of work. Lions are efficient hunters. They sit around looking at their herd for a good two hours. That's called work to them. And then when they, you know what they look for? They look for the one that will require the least effort to catch and eat. That's what a roaring lion does. It looks for the one that with the minimum amount of effort it can devour. The one that's sick. The one that's weak. And the one that's separated from the herd. The one who is mad at all the other zebras, and so he's kind of off to the side, pouting. That's the one that's going to get eaten. That's lunch. And that's an interesting thing for us to pick up on. Because Satan, I believe, is actually pretty lazy. Some people depict Satan as tirelessly working, scanning the earth. No, I don't think so. If, you know, Laziness is one of those flaws in humanity that I think Satan invented. I don't think he likes working very hard. I think he likes things coming easy to him. And that's why when we're suffering, we are at our weakest. And that is precisely the moment in which we most need to be on our guard. Be watchful. Do not allow pain to lead you to dishonor the Lord, because it is the Lord who you must honor most when you're in the midst of pain. That suffering is not His fault. He's not the one who introduced it into this universe. But He is the one who will surely bring you out of it. And it is so important for you to hear this if you're suffering. You are not justified in defying your God because your heart is hurting. When I was a young pastor, that's where my counseling ended. I would stroke people's backs and tell them, I know you're in pain. God loves you. Take care of yourself. Be at peace. And I would send them home. And so often, I'd have to have follow-ups with them because I forgot to tell them, oh, by the way, you're going to be awfully tempted to stray. You're going to let your guard down. And at that moment... Your enemy will try to take away whatever you have left in you. So now I try to tell people, I know you're hurting, but I've got to challenge you. Be on your guard or this happens. He's after you, but he's not going to work very hard to get you. Do not make it easy for him. Keep your alertness up. And one of the great things he's given us is the gift of one another. Frankly, when I'm hurting and I'm distracted, I let my guard down real fast. And if the people around me weren't saying to me, especially my wife, hey, shouldn't you be this or that? Can't you do this? Why don't you do this? And she keeps challenging me, not letting me let my guard down. And if it wasn't for her, I think there are many times in my life I would have been sunk. He also says this, and I'll just mention this before I wrap up here. He says this very interesting thing at the end of that verse here. Firm in your faith, knowing, listen, that the same kinds of suffering 
are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's a direct addressing of this phenomenon that when we suffer, we start thinking maybe we're the only ones. If you're in pain, or when you do get into pain, remember these words. That throughout this world... And over the periods of history, I guarantee you that other followers of Jesus Christ have walked the same painful path that you're walking. I don't believe that there are any new kinds of pain invented anymore under the sun. Everything you're going through, someone has already gone through. And here's the thing, some of them, the testimony is that it shattered them. But I promise if you look hard enough, you will find stories of others who went through exactly what you're going through. You know what I mean, not exactly, but very close. And they were victorious, and they were preserved, and they were rescued. And they honored God from the beginning of that suffering to the end. Why is it that pain gives us selective eyes only to see those who are doing worse than us at everything? We need to have the discipline to say, I know that somewhere out there is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who was not shattered by the same pain that I'm enduring. And if there is such a person, then I will stand firm in the faith that it is possible to survive this. That God has already done it in the life of somebody else. And if at all possible, I will seek and I will dig after that story and I will be inspired. It's one of the greatest arguments in my mind for reading biographies of great Christians. I know Pastor Frank once mentioned it's kind of aggravating to read about how great these lives were. But here's the thing. We hear too many stories about how people were crushed by trials. But it could be very strengthening to realize that despite all the temptation to take the lower road, someone in God's family has taken the high road and made it. And when I hear that, it makes me want to hang on. It makes me think, maybe you don't have to quit everything. Maybe you don't have to despair. Maybe you don't have to go off the deep end and sin as some form of twisted revenge against the universe for the pain that you're enduring. Maybe it's possible to honor God, survive, and emerge victorious. Maybe. When you're suffering, it's really important that you look for the stories in God's kingdom that inspire and strengthen your hope, not knock it down. If you're going through something like that, maybe yours is not a seasonal pain, but a lifelong one. You have, you know, I, I remember a family that had a child with special needs, and they needed to be around a support group. They needed to seek out the fellowship of others who were bearing that heavy burden and making it every day. Because every day they were tempted to be crushed by the weight of it. I think that's so important. That's why Peter is quick to remind us, one of the greatest gifts you have in suffering is the gift of one another. What will you do? When real suffering visits your life, I mean that soul-crushing, heavy suffering. Let me remind you that you need to wait on God. You might be just at the valley of a very exciting and very important U-shaped curve in your life. When God's timing is right, I promise you, he'll lift you up. You should also give it to God. We need to stop playing show and tell with God. Stop describing all your trials and anxieties, and give it to him. Release your grip on a future you can't control. Because for all your worry, you can't change one thing about tomorrow. Let him worry about that, and then ask him instead, 
Help me just keep putting one foot in front of the other today because I don't know if I'll make it without you. And finally, you honor God. Do not let sin entice you or suffering entice you into sin. Don't feel like it's some kind of strange vengeance on God and others to sin right back at the world because the world has sinned against you. That's the worst kind of deception. And I promise that your enemy will have you if you go down that road. Stand up. Keep your guard up. Be alert most when you're tempted to fall asleep. Because there is an enemy out there who's after you. And there's an enemy within who wants to sink you. So honor God most when you're hurting. Peter wraps up with this interesting little phrase. That's how I'll wrap up here. After you have suffered a little while, God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Don't be offended when Peter says, after you have suffered a little while. When your pain is that big, the point is not that he's minimizing your pain, but he's maximizing the amazing thing which awaits us. He's saying, your pain compared to what's waiting for you will seem awfully short, because if you are a follower of Christ, then no matter how this life turns out for you, you will spend your eternity in a new creation where everything that is wrong with this world has been made right. And that's something that you had to hold very, very dear in your heart. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me, and I'm going to invite the praise team to come and lead us in some closing songs in just a moment. But uh, <clears throat> here's the thing about being a pastor is that I have an interesting viewpoint on our community here. Whereas you know mainly your story, I know so many of the stories. And what I see at Harvest is that there's a lot of pain that has been experienced by this congregation over the years. And I know that some of you right now today are going through a pain so great that you're wondering honestly if you're going to see tomorrow. The worry eats away at you. Frustration eats away at you. Some of you can really identify with that feeling of isolation that comes. You're hearing this voice that says, you're the only one. Everyone's forgotten about you, even God. I'm going to tell you that how you respond to your suffering will determine whether you emerge victorious and strengthened or whether it shatters you and you never recover. Let's do this. Let's pray together for those who are suffering right now. And I promise you there are some among us you could only know their story. The pain is tremendous. They might not show it in the outside, but inside they're dying. Let's pray for them. And if that's you, I want you to pray that God will meet you in the midst of that pain. Let's pray for that right now. I know that for a great many of us in this church, 
We have, we have heard at some point or another, but maybe we can honestly say that we've never truly suffered the heavy, crushing kind of suffering. One of our great fears is that it will come when we're not ready and it will crush us. I believe that part of God's story for some of your lives is that you will pass through a season so dark that it will threaten to completely destroy you. Now is the time to strengthen your heart because when it hits, at first you won't know which way is up. And I'm going to ask each of us to really just get before God and say, God, if that day comes, don't be far from me. Help me to respond to it according to your instruction given today. Let's pray then, okay? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.